26. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. I want to speak to you on that theme today. The Lord our God is one Lord. I want to speak about that one Lord. Please be seated. My message today is intended to be both doctrinal and practical. It has application and implication in our lives. The Bible is abundantly clear. There is one God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and who exists in time and space simultaneously. He is omnipresent everywhere at the same time. But the Bible also teaches who we are. We were created in his image and after his likeness. The Bible said that all things were created by him and for him. They were created for his pleasure. Amen. So we are, as God's people, to serve the Lord our God with our entire being. That's the application of the scriptural principle. My goal today is to show that the God of the Bible is one Lord, who he is, and what that means for us. There are great truths in the Bible that should be applied to our lives that give us eternal life and give us power in this present life. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be reading a lot today from the King James Version, and you may use a modern translation, but just follow along with me. Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. The text we read today, Deuteronomy 6.4, is pivotal in understanding the nature of God. Among the Jewish people, Old and New Testament, modern and ancient, Deuteronomy 6 and 4 is called the Shema. It is the cornerstone of faith. There's the Jewish faith and ours. And if you do not understand the Shema, you cannot really understand God. Listen to these words carefully, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, it's something that you need to pay attention to. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. God is not a twin. He is not a triplet. He is not merely one in agreement. He is one in essence and in number. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Amen. The people who built the Tower of Babel were one in agreement, but they were not one in essence or in number. Jesus prayed that believers would be one with him and one with one another. That is one in agreement, but not one in essence. There were about 120 people who were gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was first given. They were one in agreement, in one accord, and in one place, but they were not one in number. 
in Acts chapter 4, after the church was threatened, they lifted up their voice in one accord. They were there with one purpose, but they were not there as one person. But Deuteronomy 6 and 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is one. The Hebrew word is akad. It means one in numerical value. Now, this was really big news to the people of Israel because the people that surrounded Israel as a nation were largely polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Pagan thinking was and is largely superstitious, and it tends toward the belief in a God of this and a God of that, a God for everything you need, instead of one God who is all you need. They believed in many gods, each having limited power, influence, and scope. It might have been a regional God, a local God, or a national God. Pagan people worship gods that they created, the invention of their minds and the invention of their hands. There are several that I'll just name. For example, Adrimelech was a god who was worshipped by child sacrifice. In Egypt, they had a pantheon of gods that included as many as 2,000 gods for every possible occasion. Some were everyday gods. Some were more special gods. There's a long list of names that I'll spare you today. Some of the famous deities were over things like cool water. And another god who was not quite as famous, she was the goddess of written words and specific measurements, but she was overshadowed by another god, Thoth, who was a better-known god of writing and the patron of scribes. In the Bible, you read a lot about Baal. He was a Canaanite god, and he was thought to provide forces over natural, over nature. Baal was worshipped with a lot of sensuality, and at the shrine, there were male prostitutes in worship to Baal. Baal and other deities were related by or portrayed by fertility signs, and I will not go into detail. Annette was Baal's mistress or his lover. She was maybe the queen of heaven referred to by Jeremiah, and there were lewd figurines that pictured this goddess. Moloch was the god, the national deity of the Ammonites, and he was also worshipped by burning children in sacrifice to him. Asheroth was the ancient goddess of the moon and sexuality, sensual love and fertility. You might be seeing a pattern here of all of these pagan gods. There was Zeus and all the Greek mythology gods and Chemosh of the Moabites and Diana of the Ephesians and Aphrodite, the goddess of sensual love. All of these gods, pagan people and their gods, were limited in the minds of people by their scope and power. Amen. But our God is greater than that God. Leviticus 19.2, speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel. And I want you to say to them that you are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He distinguished himself in number and in moral character. Our God is not a God of sensuality. He is a God of moral perfection and purity. Amen. We are told in the Bible to be holy, for he is holy. If you went to the city of Athens, Greece, 
Even today, you would find near the Agora, the marketplace, that there is a hillside that is covered with what looks like to be a cemetery. There, there are shrines to gods. When Paul visited there in Acts chapter 17 that records this, and he goes to the court of Areopagus to kind of philosophize with the Athenian philosophers, but he's going to their marketplace, and there's a god to this god, or an idol or an altar to this god and an altar to that God. And Paul writes to them in Acts 17, 22. He said, I perceive that you are very religious. The King James says, too superstitious. So I passed by and I beheld your devotions and I found an altar to the unknown God. They did not want to leave anybody out. And in case they missed a God, they just made an altar to the unknown God. But Paul said, the one that you ignorantly worship, I declare him to you. He is the creator of all the world. And in times past, he looked the other way. He winked at this ignorance. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to him. Abraham is considered the father of of the faithful. He's first called Abram. He's called out of his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, the land of Mesopotamia, to follow God. But when you read in Joshua 24, you find that Abraham's ancestors did not worship the one true and living God. The Bible says that Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, they worshiped other gods on the other side of the Euphrates River. Here's what is amazing about Abraham. It doesn't matter what your past is. You might be an idol worshiper. You might have been in a life of sensuality and sin and immorality. But when God calls you out of that past, he calls you to follow him and him alone. And he revealed himself to Abraham as the great God of eternity. Amen. Remember I told you these gods and their minds, the gods that they created, had limited scope and power. I love the story in 1 Kings 20 when the Syrians fight the Israelis. And they're in a mountain. And God's people, the Jews, they prevail. And, and they, they whoop up on, on these uh, Syrians. And so they go back home and they're trying to figure out how in the world they lost. So they reasoned, here's the problem. The God of the Jews is the God of the mountains. And that's why they were stronger than us. So the next time, we're going to fight them in the valley. And when we do, we'll beat them. Because surely their God isn't the God of every place. He's just the God of the mountains. But the Lord spoke to them and said, because the Syrians have limited me because they said that the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. He said, I want you to know that I'm going to deliver them into your hand so you will know that I am the Lord. I am God on the mountain. I am God on the valley. I'm God on your best day. I'm God on your worst day. I'm God in America. I'm God on every continent. I'm the God of all flesh. There is no place outside the scope of the governance of our great God. There's just one. After Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage, 
The Lord gave his law to Moses. The Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, they start in verse 3. And the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They came out of following the Lord all throughout the, the wanderings of the wilderness. They're still in the wilderness. Abraham has come out of Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan culture. And the Lord is revealing himself as the one true and living God. And the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is that there is nothing that should come between you and God. That nothing should be more important in your life than Almighty God. No wonder Jesus could say that if you do not take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. If you're not willing to love me more and love everyone less, the Bible says, hate father, mother, sister, brother, and your own life also, you're not worthy to be my disciple because allegiance to God is the supreme commandment of the law that we love God with all of our being. Thou shalt have no other gods before him. Amen. Now, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Here is so important. This Shema this Hebrew, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6 and 4 was the centerpiece of Jewish worship. Every morning when they got up, they would quote to themselves and to their children, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They would close their day with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Our day starts with him. Our day ends with him. Our life began because he created us in his image and after his likeness. And our life owes its allegiance to him alone. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Was the most important part of their life and their prayer. And it was to be in their heart. Not just dogma, doctrine, or a profession. It was to be something that got inside of them, that governed and guided their lives. And then the Lord said, it's in your heart, and then you're to teach it to your children. Teach it diligently to your children. And I want you to talk about it when you get up in the morning, when you go throughout your day, when you walk by the way. When you get back in your house at the end of the day, I want you to talk about it again. Amen. I want it to be the plaques on your walls. I want it to be the heroes for your children. My wife reminded me a while ago in our kitchen, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's who we serve. That's the hero of our life. Amen. Deuteronomy 6.4 was so important to their lives. But then... Verse 6, Deuteronomy 6 and 6. We're going to go through this passage just a moment. And these words, I've already said this, but let's read it. And these words, which I command you this day, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. The Jews took this literally, and they created what were called phylacteries, and they put the Bible on their wrists and on their forehand. Amen. 
He said, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. My wife believed that, and she didn't actually write it, but we did buy it. And it's on our walls. Amen. So the Bible is very clear that there is just one Lord. Amen. And God went to great lengths to reveal and protect his name. And he commanded his people to not corrupt his view, their view of his oneness. Because when God's nature is divided, his power is diluted. And when you try to multiply the nature of God, you mutate him into a lesser God. The doctrine that God is one is not a peripheral doctrine designed to divide or create controversy. It is the cornerstone of our faith. There is one God, the creator of all. He is above all. He is through all. He is in you all. And we never want to do anything that subtracts from the grandeur and greatness of our God to change the essence and power of his nature. Amen. Now, we're part of the United Pentecostal Church. We're an autonomous local church. But our general superintendent is Dr. David K. Bernard. He's written many amazing books. He's a lawyer, a theologian. But he wrote a book entitled The Oneness of God, Discussing the Nature of God. That's what I'm preaching about today. And he said the belief in only one God is called monotheism, which takes two Greek words and put them, puts them together. Monos meaning one and theos meaning the God. So if you are monotheistic, you believe in only one God. If you're not monotheistic, you may be atheistic. That means you do not believe that God exists at all. You might be called an agnostic. An agnostic says, I don't know. Maybe there is a God, maybe not. I'm just going to live in a position of ambivalence, never really committing myself that there is, as there is not, as if we are the judge of whether there's a God or not. That's a scary place to be, right? There are pantheists that equate God to the forces of nature. There are people who are polytheistic. I've already talked about them, who believe that there's more than one God or many gods, ditheism or tritheism, the belief that there are many gods. And then there are those monotheistic religions in the world. Judaism is staunchly monotheistic. You would never get a good Jew, to believe that there is more than one God. That is fundamental to their faith. And then Islam believes in one God. Christianity, many branches of it, believe in one God. And especially oneness Pentecostalism are apostolic people. Among Christian people, there are two dominant views of God. One is called Trinitarianism, and the doctrine of the Trinity holds that there is one God, but that he is eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that each of these are somehow distinct, but they are all one. Orthodox Trinity holds that these three persons are co-equal in power and authority, that they are co-eternal, past, present, and future. They may miss what Calvin Fisher has taught for the past two Wednesday nights, that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. His beginning is in Bethlehem. He is never called the eternal Son of God in the Bible. Amen. 
Now, oneness Pentecostals, they believe that the Bible is true, that there is only one God, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are manifestations or relationships of that one true God, that he was Father in creation. He came in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. God in flesh, the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And that he ascended into heaven. He sent back his spirit, not another spirit. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, one God, Father of all, who is above all, through all, and that same God is in you all. Not a second or third person, but almighty God by the power of his spirit. Now, now, what's the big deal about this? Because if you go back to the Bible, it's so important that you get your doctrine from the Bible. We understand church history Brother James Turner in our church is an expert in church history, and he studies church history, and we do, because there were developments in doctrine in church history, but doctrine was morphed from the original scripture into the ideas of man through councils, through consensus. But we go back to the Bible to understand, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And Paul wrote about this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of God was all in him, and our salvation is in him. Amen? Now, the Old Testament of the Bible over and over reinforced this doctrine, this teaching about one God. I mentioned to you that is the first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 23. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 4.35. And by the way, you may want to put on your mental tennis shoes right now. We're going to go through several passages of Scripture relatively quickly. Deuteronomy 4.35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other beside him. Isaiah 37, 15. And Hezekiah, the king of Israel, prayed, king of Judah, prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwelleth between the cherubims in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, covered by the mercy seat, two angelic beings there. The Lord said, I'll meet you there. I'll dwell there. That's what he envisions when he prays this prayer. You dwell between the cherubim. Thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44 and 6, thus saith the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Jesus also said that because he could, because he was the I am, the self-existent God come in flesh. Amen? 
I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 44 and 8. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. God wants us to be his witnesses to his nature to the world. Is there a God beside me? God asked the question. And then he looks around. Figuratively. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. And if God doesn't think there's another God beside him, I don't think there is. Amen. Isaiah 45 and 6. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. And I want to pause right here. That the Bible, when it speaks about from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, his name will be praised. He's talking about people coming to God that are outside of Judaism, which was their context. They saw God as their God exclusively. But the Lord expands that from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me. There's not a Jewish God and a Gentile God. There's not an American God and an Australian God. He is the God of all the universe and all the universe has. There is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. The Lord wears this out in Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 21. Tell you and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? And who hath told it from that time? Have not, have not I the Lord? And there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Here's that same idea that it is expanding. It is expanding beyond national Israel. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Adrimelech cannot save you. Moloch cannot save you. Baal cannot save you. There is no other God that will save you. Only God alone. Isaiah 48, 11. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? How should my name be defiled? I'm going to try to make other gods beside me. The Lord said, and I will not give my glory to another. The Bible said he's a jealous God, jealous over us. He has a right to be just like a husband and wife in a covenant relationship, have a right to one another exclusively. And because God created a covenant relationship with us, he is jealous over us because we belong to him. Amen. He is our God. We're called the sheep of his pasture. Let's get out of Isaiah for a minute. Psalm 71, 22. I will also praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth, O my God, unto thee will I sing with a harp, O thou holy one of Israel. That could give you many scriptures that speak of the holy one of Israel. Psalm 78 says the same thing, Isaiah 1 and 4, he's the holy one of Israel. So well, wait a second, that's all, all of that is in the Old Testament. Don't you have anything in the new? What you got in the new? Well, let's just go to the New Testament. And, and I want to refer you again, the past two Wednesday nights, two weeks ago, the week before this past Wednesday, 
Brother Calvin taught on the, the humanity of Christ. This past Wednesday night, he taught on the deity of Christ. It was phenomenal and so many scriptural insights, a couple that I will share with you today. John 17, 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Romans 3, 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Remember I referenced this idea that the Jews thought they had him exclusively? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles only. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcision through faith. In other words, they're not going to be saved by the works of the law. They're going to be saved by faith. 1 Corinthians 8 and 3. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. Paul is talking about, you know, there's a lot of things. You got Gentiles coming in the church, and there are four things that church asked them not to do. One of those meats offered to idols, and they're trying to keep this church together and teach the Gentiles while not alienating, alienating the Jews. And so Paul says to them that we know that an idol is nothing in the, in the world and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, he's using lowercase, talking about gods that are the invention of the minds of men and women, but to us, verse 6 says, but to us, there is but one God. We understand that they created those gods, and they have idols, and they eat and drink to those idols, and offer sacrifices to those idols. But we know better than that, he says, that there is one God of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. The Bible says that by Jesus Christ, all things were, are, and were created. Galatians 3 and 20. Now, a mediator is one. Jesus is a mediator between God and men. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Ephesians 4 and 5. We've already read this verse. There is one Lord. There is one faith. And there is one baptism. That doesn't mean that man has not created name brand church and religions and denominations. And we're called Pentecostal. But we really tie that back to the biblical experience. Our identity is tied to the scripture, right? There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And that baptism really has two parts. Jesus said, there John said, I'm baptizing you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So baptism is in water and in spirit. Amen? One baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. James said something in James 2.19. James said, you believe that there is one God? Good for you. You do well. The devils also believe. The devil does not believe in two gods. 
He's the God of this world, small G-O-D. He has delegated authority that God gave him, but can do nothing without God's permission. Amen? But the devil knows how many gods there are and his name. Amen? First Timothy 2 and 5, I've alluded to this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ <clears throat> Jesus. First John 2 and 20 but you have an unction from the Holy One, amen, and then Revelation 4 and 2. When you get to heaven, okay, anybody want to go there? Let me see your hands. You want to, the option is not so good, right? And there's not multiple options either. There's not door number one, door number two, and door number three. It's heaven or hell according to the Bible. Amen. So when you get to heaven and you see Almighty God, what will you see? John spoke about this in Revelation 4 and 2. Immediately he said, I was in the Spirit and behold a throne. A throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Not two thrones, not two persons. There's one that sat upon the throne. And if you make it there, and I believe you will, the Bible said that we will cast our crowns at his feet. There will be nothing to brag about. We will be saved by grace, saved by his blood. Amen. And when we get to heaven, our permission to be there is that our sins were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And when we get there and cry, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, we will be saying that to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God manifested in the flesh here Oh, Israel, that's our text today. Hear, oh, Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. Amen. That's, that's theology. That's who he is. The study of God, theology. That's Bible. But verse 5 is the application. And you, thou, shalt love the Lord thy God. Because he's worthy, because he's one, because there's no one else, everything else is an idol, you shall love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, with your total being, every decision you make. I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding in all thy ways. Acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. Why do you, if you acknowledge him in every area of your life, you love him with all your heart, soul, and might. We're commanded him to, to, commanded to love him like that. You know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he's wrestling with the realities of life and he walks us through confusion and the futility of life without God. But at the end of his book, he said, what is the conclusion of the whole matter? Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. See, our one God is worthy of single-hearted devotion, to love him with all of our heart, soul, and might. And then, verse 7, 
we're to teach it to our children. Every parent, grandparent, guardian, teacher, wherever you teach in this church, if you do not teach what I have taught today, then you're welcome to do something else because this is what the Bible teaches and this is what we teach in every class throughout this entire campus at every age. Amen? Thou shalt teach them diligently, not haphazardly, to your children. Not just on Sunday, but every day. Teach them diligently into your children. And I've already covered this, but talk about it all the time. Don't make it just formal in church once a week. Don't go to church on Sunday and then give God the rest of the week off. All day, every day, this is what you should do. So we believe this, amen? Now we have three sons, you know, today our boys were involved in church. Ryan led worship, Justin played bass. Uh, Joel did the analysis, three boys. And when Ryan was really little, Ryan's the oldest. And so we thought we want him to understand the nature of God. So I started asking Ryan a question. I, don't, I think it was original, but I've heard people steal this from me. Even heard it at general conference, but it's probably not original. But I would look at Ryan, just a little guy, and I'd say, Ryan, how many gods are there? And of course, the first time I asked that question, he didn't know. So I had to help him learn this. So I said, Ryan, there's one God. And then I preached this whole sermon to him. No, I'm just kidding. He's a little kid. Teach it on their level, right? How many gods are there? One. Ryan. What's his name? You see, the Jehovah became our salvation. So when you say Jesus, you're saying Jehovah is salvation. So what's his name, Ryan? Jesus. But then I want him to know more than doctrine that there's one God and his name is Jesus. So what can he do? And the answer, Ryan, is anything. So when Joel was born and got old enough to get this, Ryan and Joel, how many gods are there? One. What's his name? Jesus. What can he do? Anything. When Justin was born and got old enough to understand this, Justin, how many gods are there? There's one. What can, what's his name? Jesus. What can he do? Anything. So today, let me ask you, how many gods are there? One. What's his name? Jesus. And what can he do? You see, the power of this is it does not matter where you are right now in your life. You may have cancer. There are people in this room right now with cancer that we've been praying for, but God can heal cancer. You may have sin in your life. You've got habits that you cannot break, but Jesus can do anything. He can do anything. Because he is God, and because that beside him there is no other. He can do anything. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he ever did, he can do today. I want you to know more that there's one God. And he came in flesh. His name is Jesus. He's the I am of the Bible. We don't know that so we can just have our brand. We know that so we can have his power demonstrated in our lives. But whatever you do, 
in word or deed to all in the name of Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When we call on that one God, we recognize that the way they say it is he's omnipotent, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Go to the ends of the earth. Be in your car right before something terrible happening. Face the worst tragedy you've ever faced in your life. And he is there. He's there in the halls of your school. He's there on your job. He's there in your home. Amen. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. And he's all-knowing. Now, that can be scary. He knows everything, right? But he's all-knowing. He knows how you feel. He knows where you are. And he has a power to do something about it. How many gods are there? There's just one. That's all you need because he's all-powerful. What's his name? I'm glad I know that his name is Jesus. And I'm glad to know that he can do anything for you. He can forgive you of your sins. He can heal your body. He can deliver you from addictions that you've not been able to break. He has all power in heaven and in earth. But I also know in Old Testament and New, the mission of Jesus Christ. He can heal the brokenhearted. I've watched the Lord heal people of hurts that were 20 years old. Old, 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 it doesn't matter. He's not limited by time and space. For those of you that came to two services, I did not say this in that first message, but I feel right now to say this, that he is able to go back to the incident He's able to go back to the moment or moments. You can't rewrite your history, but God can heal your broken heart. And he can give you an eternal future in his presence. Let's pray right now. Would you confess one God in your life, one Lord over your life? Would you confess his sovereignty right now? Jesus, I love you. I thank you for this moment in your presence. Lord God, I want you to be sovereign in my life. Lord, I want you to guide me. But if you guide me, Lord, I know you must govern me. You must be my Lord. So today again, Lord, I surrender myself to your sovereignty in my life to your lordship over my life. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would give me the courage to do your will. I pray that today you would forgive sins. I pray that you would break bondage. I pray that you would heal broken hearts. I pray, God, that you would bring meaning out of futility, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you join us at this altar today? Many of you came during worship, but now I invite you to come. This is our custom to gather here to pray.
You're welcome to bring your family, bring a friend to pray with them today. Kneel, stand, let's pray.